0: Hey, everybody, I'm David Green, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center. Uh, it is December, I guess, so I, I guess I should say thank you for taking time out of your holiday shopping to join us here on the show, and uh, let's dig right in. Under a
1: deal reached by extensive U.S. diplomacy, including numerous calls I've made from the Oval Office to leaders across the region, fighting in Gaza will halt for four days. This deal also is structured to allow a pause to continue for more than 50 hostages to be released. That's our goal. This morning, I've been engaged with my team as we began the first difficult days of implementing this deal. It's only a start, but so far it's gone well.
0: All right. That, of course, President Joe Biden, he was outlining the terms for a temporary pause in military operations in Gaza. This initial four-day pause between Israel and Hamas negotiated with help from both the United States and the government of Qatar was extended earlier this week. And, you know, it could stretch out even further with the continued release of Israeli hostages by Hamas. So this deal, we should say, includes an agreement to add an additional day to this pause for every 10 hostages who are released by Hamas after the original 50 hostage threshold. So here's where we are. So far, 81 hostages have been handed over to Israeli officials, including Israeli and dual citizens, as well as Thai and Polish nationals, and one American, a four-year-old, whose parents were killed in the attack on October 7th. Last month, two other Americans, a mother and daughter, were released. Now, in return, Israeli forces have released 180 Palestinians who had been imprisoned. So let's talk about all of this and, and what's happening here. Uh, our team is with us. Moa executive director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service, was communications director for the Democratic National Committee, also advised Hillary Clinton. And we have Sarah Isger, senior editor at The Dispatch. She's a lawyer and was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. And uh, thankful to have both of you here. We have talked about the situation in Gaza before, and certainly we're into a different phase now, where the United States seems very engaged in in trying to negotiate this pause, keep getting hostages released, um, and I I, I want to kind of focus on the role of President Biden in the United States right now, and and what thoughts you each have on on how Biden is doing and and where this might go from here in terms of U.S. involvement. Uh, Sarah, let me let me start with you.
1: So I want to just takes a slight issue with how you introduce this. Yeah. Um, You know, for instance, there was a lot of passive voice. So that four-year-old's parents, you know, were killed. Well, Hamas killed that four-year-old's parents in front of him. And at the same time, you know, the Israelis released those prisoners um, who had been tried and convicted for crimes like stabbing or attempting to kill Israeli police officers or civilians, um, et cetera. It's all true. Um, I just sort of, I, I don't want to, what's the word, um, sterilize the conversation. This is all awful, gory, horrible stuff. And we should have to grapple with that. Um, okay. I'm
0: shocked that, that, uh, that it's, it's important to pick apart exactly how we phrase these things in this story. Um, I know, I know, yeah. no, but no, I, I, I want to get
1: your point about, uh, president Biden yeah. because, because I guess that's the thing, like, For so many of the conversations we have on this podcast, we want to bring nuance to those conversations. But in some conversations, I think the nuance can hide, can sterilize what's going on. President Biden is a really interesting example of this because he's stuck, man. He is stuck politically when this large minority of his party is firmly against having the U.S. involved uh, In this conflict, or to the extent it is involved, having it involved in a pro-Israeli way. And yet you have President Biden himself, who I think is on Israel's side in this, just, you know, personally, that's where he sort of comes down. And the majority of Democrats also believe that as well. Huge gap on ages, when you break down where those Democrats are. I mean, a majority of self-identifying like, sorry, they are young people. They're not self-identifying young people. Uh, Self-identified Democrats who are young people, a majority of them do not approve of how Biden has handled this. Um, So Biden's really been stuck. And I think we see that in a lot of movement here. So on the one hand, he comes out strongly, you know, Hamas are terrorists. We're gonna, you know, Israel has the right to defend itself against terrorism the same way the United States would. At the same time, we see him apologizing to people privately in the White House for, questioning the quote unquote Gaza ministry of health's uh, death toll numbers. And I put that in quotes cause it's Hamas They're, you know, the Gaza ministry of health is a nice term that Hamas uses when it's wants to sound more credible. Those numbers, by the way, like I, I question them in the sense that like, we don't have third party validation on those numbers. I don't question them in the sense that, that there is a large horrific death toll uh, in Gaza But President Biden apologizing for questioning those numbers and said he'll have to do better. Um, That's, you know, of course we should question those numbers. They don't even make sense on the face of them. Um, So he's politically been in a really, really hard spot here. And I think you start to see him back away from that strong support of Israel. Um, You know, we've seen it in the last few days. I think we're going to see more of it.
0: One, and we should say that there was a there was a tweet that he sent out that a lot of people were trying to to pick apart. I mean, he said Hamas unleashed a terrorist attack because they fear nothing more than Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace to continue down the path of terror, violence, killing and war. Is to give Hamas what they seek. We can't do that. Now, I read that tweet and I'm like I I in in essence agree that We can't give Hamas what they were looking for. Um, But I also hear maybe the first time some some public pressure on the Israeli government to to stop what they've been doing in Gaza from the president. That's that's not insignificant Um, and and maybe speaks to the position that he's that he's in right now.
1: They've also walked back that tweet. They claimed that President Biden himself tweeted that, which we all know he didn't. Um, I don't mean he didn't approve it, maybe, but also probably not. But they've also walked that back now. So like, where is the White House? I don't know.
2: Well, Mo, where's the White House? So, so, yeah, look, I wouldn't, uh, first of all, I wouldn't say it's the first time, right? I mean, he's he's come out publicly since fairly early in the conflict saying that we stand with Israel, but Israel's got to do this the right way. And he's 100% right that, the Israeli response is exactly what Hamas was hoping it would be. The Israeli response with the ferocity of its military uh, response is exactly what they wanted. Why? Because it—you know in the days following October 7th, the world stood fully, solidly with Israel. And since then, you've seen a much more mixed reaction since October 7th, since Israel began its offensive into Gaza, you've seen world reaction much more mixed because of that ferocity. That's exactly what Hamas wants. They want to muddy this. They, don't want, they want to create an environment where any hope of a two-state solution disappears, where the world's uh, support of Israel is less than solid. And so the president, yeah, Sarah's right. The president's in a tough spot because I think the president understands what so many voices in this debate refuse to acknowledge that there is no black and white other than one fact Hamas is an evil terrorist organization that needs to be rooted out. But the rest of it is not black and white, the rest of it is in the gray, the rest of it is nuanced. I listen to friends of mine on my side of the aisle, on the left, who are want an immediate ceasefire, an immediate lasting ceasefire with no conditions, with no question. That's not realistic. I listen to friends of mine on the right who, you know, the Fox News crowd who are out there saying there should be no ceasefire because that's only going to give Hamas the opportunity to redouble. There should be no pause. It's only going to give Hamas the opportunity to regroup. And that's not realistic either if we actually want to get more of these hostages out. And so the president is getting it from both sides. And and I get that because people refuse to understand the nuance and the complexities of what's happening. What has the president done? The president has put successful pressure on Israel to pause the fighting, which they did not want to do, and I understand why they didn't want to do it, in order to get hostages out. Had it not been for American leadership, I'm not sure this deal would have ever happened, and I'm not sure that four-year-old little girl, who Sarah's right, watched her parents get brutally killed by Hamas. I'm not sure she'd be home now or ever. And so— the president is actually pursuing a, a, an approach and a policy that's based on realism, and that's getting results, and it's making everybody mad because everybody wants to live in the cable news ecosystem of black and white and no nuance.
0: Well, and that, and and I have to say, Mo, I, I you know that uh, you both know that I have been very happy to to personally criticize President Biden in in lots of different ways, but but as I. As I think about you, Sarah, saying that he's stuck. As I think about you, Mo, saying that he he sees the nuance and the reality that this is not black and white in ways that a lot of people don't want to see or aren't able to see in this in this moment in our in our in our life um, in our political existence. You know, I just think about other things that Biden has handled. I don't think there was a clear right or wrong in the Afghanistan withdrawal. You could spend hours talking about how that was the wrong policy and it was mismanaged. But he did something that was really hard that had almost everyone pissed off at him. I think you could look at immigration policy. I think you can look look at his policy on transgender athletes, which made no one happy. Everyone mad at him on both sides. And now we're looking at this. And personally, I wish that he had come out much more forcefully in condemning a lot of the carnage that we've seen because of Israel's actions in Gaza. That said, he's doing something that is not going to make that many people on either side really happy. And I just wonder if this is becoming the hallmark of this presidency, existing in a place that appreciates nuance, trying to find the right policy and doing the best that they can in a way that will never get a lot of credit in a way that could cost him a presidential election and make him a one-term president. And that maybe down the road, history is going to judge him and a lot of these nuanced decisions in a more positive way than any of us can really see right now. Um, and, and that will that if he loses this election because of it or not, like that's going to make him sleep better, even if a lot of the American people don't really see the accomplishments
1: ok, so a couple things on this. One, I, I think I'm sorry, Semantics police again, I want to distinguish the word nuance from tradeoffs. There are tradeoffs in a lot of decisions. I think that's a little different than what I mean at least by nuance. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, but
0: that I mean I mean, I'll, I'll they can mean honest- they can all be part and parcel, right? I mean, to 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 Maybe. find nuance, you have to make trade-offs because you're not doing, You're trading off things that would make people who are more extreme happy.
1: I guess, to me, nuance is about saying there's not right or wrong or good or evil. Nuance is finding nuance in, like, something's rightness or evilness or something. Trade-offs are, for instance, you talked about negotiating for hostages. There is a trade-off there. You're right. It is awesome that the hostages are home and we can all rejoice for that. But do not be confused about the trade-off that we have made. We have now incentivized hostage-taking, not just by Hamas. We have incentivized hostage-taking by Iran, by every terrorist-supporting organization in the world who now knows the price that we will pay, we being America and Israel— for hostages, so yeah, that's the trade-off, and that's there different is a than nuance. nuance.
2: There is a nuance here. No, there's not. I'm not there no, is no, a nuance th- here. No, I'm no, no. Not hold disagreeing on. There's
1: there... a nuance. I'm just using the. T- I want to be clear on the term. Right. Like, i
2: like I. I don't think we should spend a whole lot more time debating nuance versus trade-off, but I do think like, the president the, where he's stuck is he's looking at a situation. Where there are very legitimate reasons to be concerned about how Israel has been litigating this offensive militarily and the impact it's having on the innocent civilian population of Gaza, a population that this military reaction, some I think could legitimately argue is radicalizing and creating more terrorists than there were before this, right? That's that's a trade-off. So,
1: The the radicalizing more more civilians, by the way, is a trade-off. The nuancing the civilians, I know, we're like in the semantics weeds here, but like there's at least one child who has said that those civilians were some of the people who attacked him and beat him when he was a hostage. So anyway, but I want to get to a second point, David, which is on how history will think about generally a president who tries to find that nuance and tries to balance those trade-offs. I don't think that history actually is very kind to those leaders.
2: Look, I think we're, I'm not sure we should be devoting a whole lot of energy and time to figuring out what Joe Biden's historic legacy is going to be. What's happening in Gaza right now, it's changing day by day. These decisions are being made day by day. Every day we are trying to, we're waiting to find out whether or not this pause is going to last another day. Or if tomorrow we're going to start seeing more bombs rain down on Gaza. And I think the president is trying to mitigate this day by day. So history will judge it when this is history. It's yeah. not going to judge it you know, in real time. What I'm seeing, but though, overall, is But president- overall, I think
1: David's right about who Joe Biden is. Joe Biden is someone who is trying not to say there is a black and white world and we will take the side of white, That's just not how he sees the world. It's not how he is as a president. And I think there's a real conversation to be had of like, is that actually good leadership? All right. I'm going to have to
0: stop us there for just a couple minutes. We have to take a break, but I don't want to lose this conversation. We'll we'll come back and pick it up as soon as we come back. Uh, You're listening to Left, Right and Center.
2: You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum.
0: Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. Support for left, right, and center comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switch to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com LRC. That's O D O dot L-R-C. Odoo. Modern management made simple. All right, we're back with more left, right, and center. And uh, I I want to pick up where we left off. I mean, I, I agree with you, Mo. I don't want to get into a, a long discussion about the legacy of Joe Biden and as it's going to be seen 15 to 20 years from now. But but Sarah, you were asking, like, is seeing the world as not black and white, as as I think we all agree, maybe Biden is doing right now, you know, Mo is is that? Good no, 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 no. I, I, see, where I guess I, I differ, I think he sees black and white. I just think,
2: and he's declared what the white is. I think he just does not see, I think he sees the path to that is through a lot of gray, right? I mean, and you listen to the speech that he gave not long ago where he was connecting what's happening in Israel, Gaza, to what's happening in the Ukraine within a framework of a global struggle for democracy— that's black and white, right? I mean, he was sort of telling us what his vision of the world is and that it is a a fight between good and evil. But that doesn't mean it's clear, there's a clear path to get there. And the decisions that get us there are through a lot of gray territory. And that's what we see him doing day by day. And the problem is the loudest voices in our politics today want us to all if we can even agree on what the white is, right, in a black and white world, they want the path to be just entirely through the white. They refuse to understand the gray. They refuse to understand or accept the complexities, and that's just not realistic. And I think this is a president who, you know, if we are going to talk about, you know, how they look at him historically, successful or, or not, they will have to say he was a realist, and that was how he approached everything.
0: Well, you know, I want to, I want to move on to a, a different subject, even though there's so much more to talk about here. But, but it's not altogether different because I, I love this conversation about leadership in today's politics and realism and how you make decisions when you're getting pressure from from different wings of of your party and elsewhere. Because I, you know, I think about the. The Republican Party right now here domestically and and kind of the, the 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 next phase for them. I mean we we have this vote to expel a, a member of Congress from the Republican Party, George Santos, who's accused of corruption and and misusing funds. We had this debate, Ron DeSantis and California's governor Gavin Newsom meant to outline, you know, how these government how these governors ap- approach policy and maybe the, the hope of the DeSantis campaign is is this will somehow, you know, help save that campaign. And 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 all this, you know, happening on the Hill seems really familiar. We have reports now all over the place again that there's all this dissatisfaction with the House Speaker, the leader of the House, Mike Johnson, though he's only been in the job for, for what, three weeks now. And, it, you know, I don't want to over-dramatize this. There's a lot of support for for him and a lot of patience. But as we've learned, it doesn't exactly take an army to throw things into chaos in the House. And And I guess I... I just wonder about leadership in the Republican Party. I mean, Sarah, who, who's in charge of the Republican Party right now?
1: Who's in charge around here? Yeah, I want to speak right? to a manager. <laughs>
0: <laughs> who would you talk to? Donald Trump, Nobody. Mike Johnson?
1: No, no, no. I mean, we basically have a, a – a, we use the metaphor you want, you know, pick one. Uh, kindergarten classroom with no teacher, um, a bunch of kittens with no mama kitten – Like there's no one even hurting the kittens. Yeah. Right. It's just kittens running everywhere, but far less cute. Um, But also (laughs) with claws, though, if you've ever had kitten claws on you, they are not adorable. I
0: have. They're they're painful.
1: Um, They're really painful. They're so tiny and sharp. Uh, Yeah. So there's nobody in charge. Donald Trump may be the leader of the Republican Party. But that doesn't mean he's in charge. Nor does he seem to want to be in charge. By the way. So
0: what do you, you mean know, by leader? Words, he's the one who's sort of setting the message and has a lot of support behind him. Is that is that how we define leadership? If yeah, not, I mean in it, charge.
1: I mean it first of all in a literal sense, as the um, uh, you know most recent former Republican president, and in our age where political parties, you know, the head of the RNC hasn't been a powerful figure in decades. Um, and he is the not just leading um, figure for the next nomination, but, you know, up by 50 points in national polls like that is the de facto leader of the Republican Party. If you were to say, what does a Republican stand for right now? You might want to ask Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party. Right. But he is not the leader in the sense that he is leading other Republicans somewhere or shows any interest in doing so. Um, there was a story, I believe it was in Politico, about uh a call that Kevin McCarthy made to Donald Trump when he was getting booted from the speakership and asking Donald Trump why he wasn't helping Kevin McCarthy. And Donald Trump was later like, um, because you didn't expunge my impeachments. And Kevin McCarthy, again, this is according to Kevin McCarthy, I think, um, said, you know, F you, Mr. President. I don't believe for a second that Kevin McCarthy actually did that. Um, but Right. Like that's not leadership to sort of be like, eh, I don't really care if there's a speaker. I don't really care who it is. So that's what I mean by like he may have the sort of titular role of leader of the Republican Party, but there is no one leading the Republican Party.
2: <laughs> Donald Trump remade the Republican Party in his own image. Right. And I've used this this literally example. Though, like, it's
1: only his image.
2: Right. And, and, and I've used this example before, but Donald Trump keeps, he reminds me of the character Pigpen from Peanuts, right? Walking around with a swirling cloud of chaos around him all the time, right? That or swirling cloud of whatever around him. And that swirling cloud around Donald Trump is chaos. That is the modern Republican Party in a nutshell. It is a swirling cloud of chaos. And Donald Trump does lead it. When he feels like it, right, when he sees a a shiny toy that he wants to play with, he will. And then when he's bored with it, he will drop it. And that's where he leaves the party at any given moment. And so, you know, uh, the problem is, you know, a lot of people always ask, you know, do we get the government that we deserve? And I don't know that we get the government we deserve, but we get the government that we allow, most certainly, and this is what we are allowing and what republican voters are allowing right now and if donald trump wins the presidency god forbid that is what we as the american people will have allowed until people step up and demand more from their leaders they're going to allow this chaos to take place and that's it that's what that's why the house looks like it does. That's why the Senate increasingly looks like the House. And that's why this presidential primary is like a huge dumpster fire. Well, speaking it speaking is, of
0: the primary, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, and again, I don't want to exaggerate, but, you know, Nikki Haley has been inching up in the polls, you know, threatening DeSantis is like the, the possible challenger to Donald Trump. And again, I mean, the numbers still suggest that, that Trump has an easy path here but like you you know you had JP Morgan head Jamie Dimon coming out and and urging not just republicans in the business community but democrats as well like get behind Nikki Haley as an alternative and and I just I honestly step back and I think about what a Haley presidency might be and it I think about some of the things we were talking about with with Joe Biden like you know they don't agree on a lot. I mean, abortion beginning, you know, starting that. But I just, the way they see the world and the way they see things is not necessarily black and white. And the way she would be president compared to someone like Donald Trump and the the pitfalls that she would experience. I mean, she's probably never going to be there because of the current political landscape. But I'm just imagining here, like, that's the those are the distinctions in leadership that we see today. And and those are the the types of leaders like Donald Trump versus Nikki Haley that are important to sort of understand in this political moment and, and the decisions that voters are facing.
1: Can Mo and I hijack for a second this conversation to have a super campaign operative uh, moment?
0: I'll give you a deadline of like two minutes for you two to engage in weedy political campaign. as long as we don't come back to it after the break. How about that? Go. Okay, two, two minute minutes. Hijack. Yeah, two minute hijack.
1: Okay, so David, the only way that Nikki Haley overtakes Donald Trump is through New Hampshire. You can look at the polls um, and see that if you don't stop Donald Trump in New Hampshire, there ain't no stopping him now. So uh, Nikki Haley is firmly in the number two spot, but she's still double digits behind Donald Trump. There will be no Democratic primary, not a meaningful one, in New Hampshire, in theory, because Joe Biden won't be on the ballot. Now, there's some conversation about a write-in. Um, uh, Dean Phillips will be on the ballot there. So my question to Mo is, campaign operative to campaign f- operatives, former, both, um, what do Democrats do in New Hampshire? Do they cross over and vote in the Republican primary to help Trump To because they think he'll be weaker against Joe Biden? To... Vote for Nikki Haley to stop Trump, or do they participate in the sort of weirdo write-in campaign to like make Joe Biden look stronger so that Dean Phillips doesn't win? What's the strategy for Democrats?
2: I don't know that there's a strategy for Democrats. This is all about the independents, though, right? Because when in New Hampshire, Democrats have to—you know—Democrats typically take the Democratic ballot, Republicans take the Republican ballot, but independent can choose whichever ballot they want when they walk in. And there's not a Democratic primary this time. So Nikki Haley's goal, her hope, the only way she makes it through is for every single one of those independent voters to walk in and choose a Republican ballot. If, there was, if this was 2016, where you had two open primaries, the battle for the independent vote is a lot more complicated because you're competing with the other party for them. But here it's actually very simple. She just needs those independent voters in a way um, to turn out for her in a way, and and that's why my question you know, is also
1: is the polling capturing those independents who are then far less likely to pick up a Democratic ballot, right? And maybe she's doing better than the polling would even suggest. Maybe.
2: Yeah, maybe. But look, I think that's one of the reasons why she and Chris Christie have you know uh, have been ascendant in New Hampshire and not Ron DeSantis, right? And it's in part because of not just, you know, this operative stuff we're talking about, but also going back to what we were talking about before. The reason DeSantis is on the decline, why Ramaswamy is on the decline, is because all they've been promising was that they were a more effective pig pen, right? That they were, a more, they had more, that they were more effective at the chaos. Haley and Chrissy are trying to say, no, no, we are the anti-chaos. That is a clear choice, Right. If you're if you want the chaos, if you you're going to stick with Donald Trump, you're not going to go to chaos light. Haley is ascendant because she is the only person offering a clear choice. And in New Hampshire, I'm with Sarah. New Hampshire is the ballgame for her. And if she can use that to then springboard into her home state of South Carolina, where she's currently trailing. But a New Hampshire bump might help her out. Maybe have a race. I don't think she does. I think she can do well in New Hampshire. I don't know if she can knock him off.
0: All right. And Um, we're out out of time for the (laughs) campaign operative insider two minutes. Um, We're going to take a quick break. Uh, I actually, for the record, like this conversation, got a lot from it, but uh, we're still going to take a quick break. Back more with Left, Right, and Center in a moment. Thanks for
2: listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Okay, we are back with more left, right, and center. Moa Lathe and Sarah Isger were just engaging in a brief period of campaign operative insider weedy, but still very interesting political talk. And I'm just going to... I'm going to double down and jump in and and continue it, even though it's probably a bad idea. Um, You both really think that if Nikki Haley can do well in New Hampshire and and maybe get a bump in South Carolina, that she has a legitimate chance to become a viable alternative to to Donald Trump? The stakes are that high as we head to New Hampshire? All
2: I'm— all I'm saying is that if she were to have a chance, that's the only chance.
0: OK, that's right? a little different. If
2: she were to have a chance, she has to win New Hampshire or or keep it like super close with Trump and then use that as a bump into South Carolina. Suddenly, you might have an actually competitive campaign. I bet money would start to roll in. I bet then you know, they could leverage that into into competing more in Super Tuesday. Maybe it's more competitive. But that's the only path to, to it being competitive. Otherwise, you know, it, this thing is done.
0: Well, can I can I now take us back out of the weeds, but sort of stay on the larger topic? Like, I, I just, Mo, you you talked about the the impact slash damage that Donald Trump has done to the Republican Party, um, and and like, I see two different broad ways to look at the the climate right now. On one hand, it's like Donald Trump came in and you know changed everything in the party. It's in chaos. This is why you have Mike Johnson who is you know even having Republicans getting angry at him for talking to Senate leaders about way to ways to work together and compromise like it's just a, a total mess. The other way is is something that we've often talked about on the show which is that it's just largely that in in these politics the parties are losing power. And I guess as you look at the situation in the GOP, can Democrats empathize? I mean, it, isn't this a reality that, that both parties are facing?
2: Yeah. And, and, and let me re-
0: reframe what I was saying earlier, because I,
2: I, I don't know that Donald Trump broke the Republican Party because he had like, – re- voters voted for him. Republican voters voted for him, and they did it for a reason. They did it because the establishment Republican Party that had been in charge up until then wasn't giving at least a plurality of Republican voters in 2016, wasn't giving them what they needed, wasn't giving them what they wanted. And Donald Trump saw that and gave it to them. And so, you know, the bigger issue, I think, is right, that the the, both national parties— have been gutted, and go. And this goes back into some of the post-Watergate um, political reform that we have seen. They've been gutted. They've lost their ability to do a lot of things that they used to do. And so as a result, the doors were thrown all open. And voters got to decide what the parties look like. Rather than the parties deciding what they look like and presenting it to voters, they gave voters the right to say, no, no, you guys decide what we look like. And that gave Donald Trump the opening he needed. So, you know, I think both parties, the the party leadership, the, the establishment in both parties have to be aware of this. They've got to be aware of this. They've got to understand that they don't get to pick anything. And you know what? They kind of know it. In 2020, the Republican Party said, we're not even going to have a platform. We're not even going to put out there what our agenda is. Whatever our president wants, that's that's what we're for. The agenda is Trump, period. The agenda is Trump. The agenda is whatever he says it is. And so, you know, both parties have to recognize that they have to be more responsive and that's dangerous in many ways when the only people who are getting involved in shaping the direction of the parties are the loudest voices on the left and the loudest voices on the right.
0: Sarah, can I ask you the as as voters do come to make a choice heading to places like New Hampshire. You know, we've been talking about styles of leadership. Like we've been talking about trade-offs, we've been talking about nuance, we've been talking about leaders who see things as gray and not black and white, like is, is Donald Trump the black and white, the leader who doesn't see nuance, and is Nikki Haley the realist, more reasonable, I see nuance, I see the gray? Is that the proper way that voters should be framing this Republican race, or, or is that is that off somehow?
1: So Donald Trump has built an entire political brand off being only black and white, right? Like, That's build the wall. It's not what the Republican, largely what the Republican platform was before that, which is we should stop illegal immigration, but increase legal immigration, right? That's like not quite black and white. It's like, no, immigrants are good for this country, just not illegal immigrants. Uh, Donald Trump, I think that's the best example I can give, though he did it in nearly every context um, within the Republican Party platform. So 100%, he is A, black and white leader and like an extreme black. It's like the darkest black and the whitest white. Right. Um, More so than I think even sort of normal black and white leaders of the past. I would have said George W. Bush was largely a black and white leader, um, but like not the same at all as Donald Trump, obviously. Nikki Haley is a bit of a more interesting question because I see why you're describing her that way, Mm -hmm. but that's not quite how I've seen Nikki Haley's career. She and and maybe it's not quite how I see Joe Biden's career, because I think both Joe Biden and Nikki Haley have been incredibly artful at tacking to the center of their own political party. And as the center of their political party moves, so do they. Now you can call that flip-flopping or whatever else you want to, or evolving or being realistic yeah, the, or
0: many different that's ways. That's right. To, yeah. Or
1: being successful as a politician. Right. <laughs> um So, and for a lot of people, I mean, I think that's seen as a bad thing, but maybe it's not, you know, you're saying I'm going to represent the people of my party and roughly speaking, I'm going to try to find sort of what the most number of people believe and I'll represent that and I'll represent you, meaning the middle, um, you know, the median of that party. It has, I I say it's worked for Joe Biden. Um, it, you know, it got him the presidency in the end, but God knows he was, he's one of the only people ever to not um, win the presidency on his first time trying. There's lots of people who've gotten the nomination later after trying, but very few win after uh, trying and not winning that first time. Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, um, Ronald Reagan had tried before, though you could argue that was... Anyway, the point being, uh, you know, Joe Biden arguably hasn't been that successful. I can't believe I'm saying that about someone who's won the presidency. So I don't know, um, but I'm not sure I'd say Nikki Haley is simply a realist. I don't think that's how she would say she sees herself. Um, I think she's just someone who tries to be a successful politician.
0: Well, speaking of people who see themselves as realists, that is a perfect transition um, because uh, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the the legacy of Henry Kissinger, uh, who died this week at the age of 100. Uh it's hard to imagine anyone who shaped U.S. foreign policy more than he did. He was U.S. Secretary of State, National Security Advisor under Presidents Nixon and Ford, but then kept advising other presidents all the way up to Joe Biden. I mean, he was known for his strategic involvement in the Vietnam War, shaping U.S. diplomatic relationship with China. And his legacy is complicated, as we've been seeing from a lot of the obituaries and reactions. I mean, depending on who's talking, he was, he was a genius, or a narcissist, sometimes both. He was seen as the ultimate realist, visionary, or a diplomat with no concern for core American values who has a a ton of blood on his hands. Um, I mean, judge as you will, I personally think a lot about his views on Russia and Ukraine. I mean, after he played pivotal roles shaping U.S. policy during the Cold War, an elderly Kissinger watched Vladimir Putin forcibly annex Crimea, part of Ukraine, in 2014. And I wouldn't say Kissinger was a Putin apologist, but he said the West had to understand Russia's history and the important role that Ukraine plays in Russia's history. And I I remember quoting Henry Kissinger in the prologue to the book that I wrote about Russia in, in 2014. He had written in the Washington Post that Ukraine cannot be seen as a showdown between East and West. It has to always remain a bridge between East and West. And he wrote that Putin is a serious strategist on the premises of Russian history, but understanding U.S. values and psychology are not his strong suits, nor has understanding Russian history and psychology been a strong point of U.S. policymakers. So he always felt, for one thing, that Ukraine should never be part of NATO, which is, of course, such an important question. But then I was shocked this year when Henry Kissinger seemed to admit that he was wrong. He believed when he died that Ukraine should be part of NATO. And now when he explained that position, he was so very Kissinger. I mean, he said it's not about Ukraine being part of one side or the other. It's more nuanced. It's more realist. But, you know, as, as a Russia observer, um, this was really meaningful to me, but also incredibly worrisome because it it suggests that any notion of finding workable relationships with evil leaders like Putin, totally off the table, if you have someone like Henry Kissinger you know, in his dying days, saying that that let's bring Ukraine into NATO, which is something that that I, I don't think, I, in the in the short term, Putin will not accept that, and it just takes any sort of hope for some sort of peace anytime soon, off the table. But the the fight for something bigger, you know, might be worth it. Um, that's my Kissinger moment. Who wants to Who wants to talk Kissinger next?
1: Well, David, if I could um, just. This has been going around the internet, but it is in fact true. The New York times style section was interviewing people at like a schmancy New York restaurant that they were running into. Uh, you know, uh, Martha Stewart was among the people and they ran into Henry Kissinger and here's the interview. May I ask you where your suit is from? My what? Where did you get your suit? I have no idea. How was lunch? I think we've done enough. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Sounds right.
1: Uh, Yeah, you sort of have to remember these guys are people too. Um, You know, I think that Kissinger, talk about legacies, uh, he will be seen as, you know, one of the preeminent forces behind a post-World War II America, Um, you know, from sort of the World War II era through the end of the Cold War. I understand he was still very much a part of America's zeitgeist in that post-Cold War era, but with less day-to-day hands on the, you know, joystick. Um, But in this moment where we're talking about Israel and Gaza and uh, authoritarians and all of it, I just think it's helpful to remember Henry Kissinger fled Nazi Germany, right? That's where he was born. That's why he has that funny accent. Um, He was racially profiled by the Nazi regime, beaten by Hitler youth gangs, um, and his family fled in 19... 38. He was 15 years old, you know, sort of that perfect age where you're old enough to understand something, but not old enough to really understand why it's happening. Um, And I don't know, I think we'll, we'll miss having more Kissingers around as that era who remembers Nazi Germany exits because um, I, I, and I, I can't emphasize this point enough. I think we've failed to teach a generation that Nazi Germany didn't think they were the bad guys. Nazi Germany thought they were the good guys. Lots of Americans didn't know if they were the bad guys. Charles Lindbergh, an American hero, didn't think they were the bad guys. You have to make these moral decisions for yourself because the bad guys aren't going to be actually wearing black hats. um, And we're not actually wearing white hats. And I think instead people, you know, again, think there's nuance everywhere. Sometimes there's not.
2: I think Henry Kissinger, uh, much has been said about his worldview and his ability to see, I mean, he saw the world as a giant chess set and was incredibly strategic. Um, I'm sure he was a great chess player. He saw this as a battle between the United States and democracy versus the Soviet Union and communism. And he, everything he did was in the context of that chess match. The way he got to detente with the Soviets, the way he opened up, got Nixon to open up China as a move to isolate these two great communist powers from one another. In a way that actually lasted for decades, it's only now we're beginning to see those two countries cozy up to one another again in a in a very real way, um, and a lot of that can be seen can be traced back to Nixon and the way he played this chess game. The problem I think a lot of people have with Henry Kissinger, I know one of the reasons I have with Henry Kissinger was he was willing to sacrifice every single pawn in able, in order to win the chess match. And that's when you look at things like Cambodia and the carpet bombing of a seemingly neutral Cambodia that led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge. It's uh, What he saw in Pakistan and, and, and what we saw in Pakistan and Bangladesh. Human rights issues, irrelevant in the chess match. Other what we would today call traditional American values were completely irrelevant in that chess match. So while he was able to isolate China from the Soviet Union and position the United States strategically against the Soviets in a a real way, the long-term damage it did to America's standing abroad with with all the other nations of the world, all the developing nations, we still haven't recovered. There's still a lot of anti-American sentiment in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, that can be traced back to decisions the U.S. made during this time period. And that has to be as much of his legacy as the good, as the big picture strategic battle between what he saw as good and evil. It's it's a complicated legacy.
0: All right, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. It is time for our left, right, and center rants and raves before we finish up. Uh, Sarah?
1: Okay. I have a really unpopular rant. I mean, this is going to be my least popular take maybe in the history of this show.
0: Jesus. Okay. Thanks for the warning.
1: I don't like Thanksgiving leftovers. (laughs) I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday by far. Number two is 4th of July, but there's a big gap between those two for me. Uh, Thanksgiving is it for me. I love the the peopleness of it, which again, I can only do once a year, but still, I love it on that day. Um, and I love the meal, which some people don't like. Those people should be shipped out of the country, probably. So the meal itself is wonderful. But having to eat the leftovers for days on end feels a little like punishment.
0: I don't disagree with that in you know the the <laughs> fundamentally, but I just wonder if you're making the wrong leftovers, like someone could give you some better advice on. Making this is why good. you have to be more
2: like me. Halloween needs to be your favorite holiday because oh, you can God, eat you and those Halloween. leftovers for weeks. What, candy corn? I <laughs> be more like, what, what are you candy. eating? Like, Disgusting. Kid, no. I still have Kit Kats and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups here in my office. Great. A whole bowl of That
1: just of means you're not leftover. doing a good enough job in a short enough period of time. That's I'm pacing myself.
2: And, and I get to raid my kids' stash. So
0: Is that your Halloween. rave, Halloween leftovers? No, my,
2: I have a rant slash plea. One of the things that really, really pissed me off over the past couple of weeks has been this story about a growing trend on TikTok to share and sympathize with Osama bin Laden's letter to America. If you haven't been following this, Osama bin Laden released a letter to America in the aftermath of the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attack. And that letter has started to get traction and being shared by primarily young users all over TikTok in a sympathetic way. Now, there's lots of talk about how that's happening, that it's an orchestrated campaign by by some of our foreign adversaries, the Soviets, maybe the Iranians, whomever. And TikTok was very slow to deal with this. Now, I could rant about TikTok. I do that a lot. But here's where my plea comes in. I think our politics and our society would be much better if we as a people would prioritize the teaching of media literacy in our schools at a very young age. Age Age-appropriate media literacy from grade school all the way through might help better prepare young people to weed out some of this nonsense in a world where it's getting harder and harder to weed out nonsense. Maybe this is a segment for another show. I
0: like it. But media literacy, I think, is critical if we're going to turn the corner on some of these problems. One of the most important things in our democracy, you have me on board for making that a segment. Um, Okay, before we go, my rant. Uh, I spent part of Thanksgiving weekend watching the Detroit Lions and Green Bay Packers with my wife's family who are Lions fans uh, in Detroit. I am sorry to the Lions fans in my family. Their team lost to the Packers and their up-and-coming quarterback, Jordan Love. He is seems to be getting better each week. He has a showdown this weekend with Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. And so reporters asked him not about that showdown, but if he thinks Taylor Swift is going to show up at Lambeau Field. He said he doesn't listen to much of Taylor Swift's music. You know, we're getting to playoff time. I'm kind of done with the Taylor Swift questions coming up in every NFL interview. It was fun for a while. I love Taylor myself. I think if she and Travis Kelsey are meant to be together forever, that's great. But let's start focusing on football in those interviews. I want to say I actually like the Packers' chances this weekend. And when Travis Kelsey and maybe Taylor Swift are hosted by Jordan Love on Sunday night, I think it's going to be a love story, baby, but not one that the Chiefs are going to enjoy. That's all. I want to thank Sarah Isger and Moa Alethe. And uh, I want to tell you that Left, Right & Center is produced by the fabulous Markay Green. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Nick Lamponi. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right & Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media, and we are distributed by PRX. I am David Green. Thanks for being here, and come back next week. We'll have more Left, Right & Center. Download and
2: subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW.